0: Hey! Quit kicking that sand in our face! Listen here, Mac. I'd smash your face. While you're so skinny, you might dry up and blow away. See you later, Curly. The big bully. I'll get even someday. Oh no! Don't let it bother you, little boy. You were really nice to meet you, Grace. Can I uh, come around some evening? No, I'm afraid not. I'm pretty busy. Good day. Darn it! I'm sick and tired of being a scarecrow. Charles Atlas says that he can give me a real body. All right, I'll gamble a two-cent stamp and get his free book. Boy, it didn't take Atlas long to do this for me. Look at those muscles bulge out now. There's that big stiff again, showing off in front of Grace and the crowd. it's my turn this time. Wham! Now it's your turn to dry up and blow away. Oh, Mac! You are a real man after all!
1: Hello, listeners. Welcome to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, Episode 4. My name is Mike Boyles. I'm the creator of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, a website with a wide range of features dedicated to comics. Part of my love for the comic book medium is history. I like to find out how things started and evolved over the years. I now have access to every story published by DC Comics in their 75 plus year history. I'm going to read these stories more or less in the order they were published. Along the way, I'm recording these podcasts to share the experience with you, the listener. I'll be providing background on the stories, the creators, and the company as it evolved. The earliest stories and features were pioneers in the industry so I'll be devoting some significant time to the coverage of those stories. Hopefully this will be an entertaining and informative look at DC from a rare perspective. To kick off today's episode, I'm going to talk about a little-known aspect of the early DC comics, the ads. New Front Number One, the first comic DC published, was the first comic to feature all original content. But did you know it was also the first newsstand comic to carry paid advertising? Many of the early comics were giveaways and advertising premiums. So they may have contained mention of the advertiser that they were produced for. However, the relatively few comics that were sold at newsstands in early 1935 did not carry advertising. New Fun Number 1 was the first. In contrast, Famous Funnies, published by Eastern Color, which was the major newsstand comic prior to New Fun, did not carry ads until number 9, cover dated April 1935. Keep in mind, New Fun was dated February 1935 and came out in January. So what kind of ads did these early DC Comics contain? The first ad appearing on page 11 of New Fun number 1 was for international correspondence schools. This kind of ad was typical for decades. It offered education and training courses on a variety of subjects. Considering that less than 40% of the United States population over the age of 25 in 1935 had completed high school, continuing education courses like this one were probably useful for people who wanted to get better jobs. By the late 1970s, that 40% number had plateaued to about 80 or 85%. So despite the fact that the quality of education in this country takes some harsh criticism, deservedly so, at least graduation rates have dramatically increased compared to 75 years ago. So this ad is not terribly exciting, but it is technically the first ad in a comic book. However, the second ad, appearing on page 14, is a classic. It's called The Insult That Made a Man Out of Mac. It is a comic strip, as I've demonstrated in the dramatic reading at the beginning of this episode. In the first panel we see Mac at the beach with his girlfriend Grace. He's getting sand kicked in his face by a bully. When the bully threatens Mac he is too skinny to fight back, and Grace is not impressed, and she declines to see Mac again. Sick and tired of being a scarecrow, Mac sends a two cent stamp for a free book. Following the instructions of the book, It doesn't take Mac long to develop a large, muscular build. The steroids were probably a big help, too. He then returns to the beach and punches out the bully and impresses the girls. Yes, this is a classic ad for the Charles Atlas bodybuilding program. A grainy picture of Atlas accompanies the ad, along with a mail-away coupon for the free book. Everlasting Health and Strength. The steroids cost extra, I think. The ad copy states, They used to think there wasn't much hope for me. I only weighed 97 pounds. I was a sickly scarecrow. Then I discovered dynamic tension. It gave me the, the body that twice won the title, the world's most perfectly developed man. Now I make you this amazing offer. At my own risk, I'll give you proof in just seven days that my same method can make you over into a new man of giant power and energy. This ad was used before, likely in pulps and magazines. However, the fact that it appears in this very first comic book to contain ads just seems appropriate. Another bodybuilding ad, this one from the Joette Institute, appears on page 15, but it can't beat this classic Atlas ad. Back then, comics weren't associated with nerddom as they sometimes are these days. Every kid back then probably read comics. But as time passed, comics were largely adopted by the nerd culture. Or at least the nerds obsessed over them more. I'm speaking from experience here. So Mac is the classic weakling nerd using the power of Atlas, and probably some steroids, to beat the bully. A power fantasy that would become a comic's cornerstone in the form of a superhero in years to come. Other ads in new fun include an ad for a 16-tube all-wave radio, pro razors, pitched by baseball legend Dizzy Dean. The U.S. School of Music. An ad for a belt that can reduce your weight size. Basically a men's corset, I think. And an electronic school ad. Also inside was an ad from the Wilson Chemical Company. They sold novelties in comic books for decades. This issue advertises a safety rifle, a banjo, and a wagon. Nothing too special. I guess they weren't offering x-ray specs yet. Finally, the back cover has a comic strip for the Ralston serial, featuring the Cowboy Tom mix. There's even a mail-away for a dandy zip gun. Issue number two has the same type of ads. In some cases, the ads were simply reused. Uh, Number three includes ads for Remington typewriters, a standard for the 1940s. Uh, they were a frequent advertiser. And Beechnut Nut Gum. Issue number five contains an ad from the Johnson Smith Company, another longtime novelty producer. This one had whoopee cushions and a pistol that shot blanks. One notable advertising missing from these early new fun issues was Daisy Rifles, who made BB guns. Daisy was advertising in Famous Funnies, but not yet in the comics at National. A Daisy would be a very frequent ad that especially appeared on back covers of many of the DC comics in the Golden Age. So as I continue in future episodes, I'll be pointing out significant or cool ads as I run across them in the comics I'm covering. Many of the stories that appeared in early DC comics were serials that ran for many issues. In the interest of presenting a cohesive narrative, I'll be covering these serials as single units within a given episode. However, not all of these serials were created equal. Some had really short runs. Take the case of Loco Luke, which debuted in New Fun number 1. Loco Luke was the comedic cowboy creation of Jack Warren, an artist who drew Pecos Bill, the newspaper strip. An interesting note on Warren was that he lost an eye when he was just 15 years old. Despite that setback, he still went on to have a career as an illustrator. Local Luke's adventures feature him trying to capture the wanted fugitive Black Dan. Due to Luke's ineptitude, Dan leaves him in the desert all alone and stripped of all his clothes. An Indian named Turkey Tail finds and rescues Luke. He guides the cowboy back to his teepee and nurses him back to help. A short time after, they part ways. Luke then runs into Black Dan again, and the outlaw steals his clothes all over again. Luke returns to Turkey Tail, who gives him Indian clothes to wear. Luke then makes a play for the Indian chief's daughter, and the chief chases him away. The last segment of this story in New Fun Number 4 actually makes the cover of the issue. Although it says the story will continue in the next issue, it doesn't. Loco Luke would appear again, but not at DC, or National as it was known at the time. In 1936, Loco Luke appeared in a few issues of Dell's popular comics. So this brings to light a question of ownership. Does DC own the rights to the characters from their early comics? Did creator Jack Warren have a special arrangement that allowed him to take his strip elsewhere that other artists didn't have? I don't really know. If I wanted to publish a Sondra of the Secret Service comic, for instance, could I do it? DC hasn't used the character, so even even if they had ownership at this point, the rights may have lapsed. I only bring this up because of the frequent legal battles concerning the ownership of Superman. That's a bag of worms I don't want to dive directly into right at this moment, but I do think it's an interesting that in this case, the ownership of Loco Luke appears to have been retained by the artist, not the company. Another short-lived strip was Jack Andrews, the All-American Boy. That strip ran in New Fun number one through New Fun number six before it was dropped. Jack was a multi-sport athlete at Dover Academy. When he refuses to take a bribe to throw a football game, mobsters try to kill him. The first two chapters were drawn by Lyman Anderson, the same artist who drew the first two Jack Woods episodes. You remember that from episode one of my podcast. An artist named Bill Lehman drew the third installment. I can't find any information on him. Uh, that name may be a pseudonym for another artist. Uh, that chapter is extremely weak on the art side, so maybe the guy was just a fill-in. The final three chapters were in color and drawn by Tom Cooper, who I'll be discussing probably next episode when I get to the buckskin Jim strip. The storyline in episodes 5 and 6 of Jack Andrews is really disjointed. The writer even forgot the name of the main character. Jack is consistently called Dick in new fun number six, despite his name Jack appearing in the title of the strip. Ugh. that's bad. Uh, a better and far more enduring sports feature, Pep Morgan, would debut a few months later in more fun number 12. After School was a humor strip about two young boys, Slimsy and Lefty, They were friends, but also antagonists. The first few strips also featured Lefty's Uncle Wilbur. Not sure why they were calling him Uncle, though, since he appears to be Lefty's kid brother. But whatever. In any case, Slimsy thinks Uncle Wilbur is a jinx and always gets him into trouble. The strip ran from New Fun number one to number six. The last episode had a segment that would be totally inappropriate for today's comics as Lefty performs for the other children in blackface. This kind of racial stereotyping and bigotry was pretty common for the Golden Age of Comics. It was socially acceptable at that time. Thankfully, we've made quite a bit of progress since the 30s, and that stuff's no longer tolerated. We still have some work to do on the... Equality front, but it's not nearly what it was in the 30s, thank God. After School was written and drawn by Tom McNamara in a cartoon style. The adventures of these kids are reminiscent of our gang shorts. I used to watch those as a kid. Of course, I saw them in reruns alongside my Saturday morning cartoons. They weren't new at that time. McNamara did Sunday comic strip pages in the 1920s and 30s, He also did humorous advertising that appeared on pins that were given away with cigarettes. Because you have to have a kitty prize to go with your smokes. You know, get those kids started smoking young. Different times, for sure. Or are they? Hmm. At National, McNamara drew many humor strips and filler material, off and on through the late 1940s. Some of his regular work included the Gas House Gang, Silly Willy and Alex and Follyland. One filler strip by McNamara that appeared in many titles was called Grandpa Peters. It actually begins in New Fund number three and is simply my grandpa. The strip appears on the top of the same page as the after school strip in New Fund number three through six. Whether my grandpa or any of the after school experts escapades, for that matter, were, were drawn from McNamara's real-life experiences. I don't know. But they all do have kind of a real-life-through-a-child's-eyes feel to them. Dick Letter, the artist behind Bubby and Beeble, who I discussed in Episode 3, also contributed a strip called Caveman Capers that appeared in New Fun number 1 through 5. This one is pretty simple. It involves two kids, Er and Wurr who live in prehistoric times. Ur discovers fire and becomes a hero very briefly. Then a chase ensues as Ur and his sister were, are chased by a rather pathetic-looking dinosaur. Obviously, it suffers from being historically inaccurate, which is forgivable. But to be honest, it's a rather weak offering. The art is subpar, and the story's not interesting at all. Oh, and the dinosaur from New Fun Number 5 looks like Mickey's dog Pluto. Bob Weinstein, the artist who drew the Captain Cloud comic strip in the 1930s, contributed two episodes of Captain Eric in New Fun number one and two. It stars a ship captain who is in a race with his rival Butch Ramson to hunt down seals. A traitor on Eric's ship cuts a hole in the side of the boat. We are left expecting the story to continue in the next issue, which would have been New Fun number three, but the story doesn't continue. I can only presume that Captain Eric's ship sank at sea. A uh, pretty good result for a seal butcher in my opinion. Wing Brady, Soldier of Fortune, was a long-running feature that began in New Fun No. 1. The feature lasted until More Fun No. 52 in 1940, missing only issue 10, so it was a fairly long-running series. Wing and his pal Slim were members of the French Foreign Legion. New Fund No. 6 makes it clear that both men are Americans. The Foreign Legion was established in 1831 and was created for the purpose of allowing foreign nationals to serve in the French military. Given that America herself was deeply entrenched in a period of isolation from world affairs in 1935, the Foreign Legion was one place that a potential soldier might see some action. New Fund number 1 shows Wing and Slim in the desert. The actual location is not specified. I assume that the story takes place somewhere in North Africa. The French were involved in Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco during this time period. From an observation point, the pair sees a unit led by Corporal Levin, and that unit is under attack by a Bedouin force. The attack occurs a great distance from Wing and Slim's current position so they take a plane to aid their comrades. The plane is damaged by ground fire in the fight, forcing the duo to make an emergency landing. Wing then helps Corp. 11 repel the Arab attackers while Slim makes repairs to the plane. Once the plane is able to take off again, Wing concocts a plan. He decides to tie a rope to his legs and the other end to the plane. Then while they're in the air, he hangs upside down from the rope with his hands free, he grabs the leader of the Bedouins and pulls him from his from the saddle of his horse. I've seen some crazy stunts pulled in movies and literature, but this one is extremely far-fetched. In any case, Wing attempts to talk to the other Arabs. He offers to return their leader in exchange for safe conduct of his troops, uh, Corporal Levin's men, back to their base. Instead, the Arabs decide to capture and torture Wing. Slim is forced to rally the Legion troops and rescue his friend. Many of the Arabs are captured during the battle. The captured Arabs are tied up in the Legion camp, but two of them overpower a guard and escape. This brings us to the end of New Fun number six. Wing Brady's early adventures were all drawn by Henry Carl Keeper. The first couple were signed under the pseudonym De Decaroset, which was Kiefer's wife's maiden name. Kiefer was born in eighteen ninety and was another pulp illustrator who made the transition to comic books. At National he drew the Just Suppose feature in addition to the early episodes of Wayne Brady. After leaving National, Kiefer drew both for the Chesler and Iger shops. During this time he contributed to quality comics on features such as The Red Torpedo and Lion Boy. The Red Torpedo was briefly used in All-Star Squadron. He also drew many issues of Classics Illustrated before his death in 1957. Kiefer would continue to draw the feature until Morphin number 9. No writer is credited on this series. Given the military nature of this strip, it would not surprise me at all if the adventures were written by DC founder Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, who had an extensive military background. That's not to exclude the possibility that Kiefer may have written the strips himself. The other thing to note about these adventures was that they were almost all in black and white. Color was introduced to new fun beginning with Issue 3. However, some strips continued to be printed in black and white. Presumably this was done to save on printing costs. On this first Wing Brady serial, only the chapters in Issue 3 and More Fun Number 8 were printed in color for a few years national also printed some pages in two color instead of four color this color was nearly always red so some pages were black but white and red uh, this was first used in morph number 11 when some red highlights were added to black and white strips the wing brady logo for example was colored red more red highlighting was used on wing brady in morph number 13 and finally in morph number 17 The full two-color process was used throughout the strip, so that one was printed in two colors. All the issues that I didn't mention were actually just printed in black and white. Back to our story, the two Arab prisoners have escaped from the Legion camp. Wing and Slim pursue them into the desert. These Arabs join another large group, led by Ali Ben Saad. The story is unclear as to whether Ben Saad was actually one of the escapees, but I don't really think he was. The Arabs then attack a caravan, making its way across the desert. Slim departs to bring help. And by the way, he's never seen again. Wing tries to help the caravan, but reaches it too late. He finds the remains and one survivor, an old man. The man tells him that an American girl was taken prisoner by the Bedouins. Wing leaves a message for Slim, then goes off in pursuit. During the trek through the desert, Wing's horse gives out, so he's forced to follow on foot before he himself finally falls in the desert due to thirst. That's where things leave off in more fun number nine. Wing strip was not in more fun number 10. Uh, when a story picks up again in number 11, a new artist has come on board, Tom Hickey. Born in 1910, Hickey joined National in 1936 and worked on several strips. Compared to many of the early national artists, Hickey was fairly prolific. In addition to Wing Brady, which he drew until its conclusion in 1940, he also drew Golden Dragon for New Comics and Bruce Nelson for Detective Comics. He left National in 1940 and went to work for Dell and Quality. In the 1950s, he drew Romance Comics for Hardy. Hickey passed away in 1984. When we last saw Wing Brady, he was struggling to stay alive in the desert. In More Fun Number 11, Wing is found by an Arab merchant named Nasir who nurses him back to health. Nasir makes reference to a time when Wing saved his life. That debt is now repaid. Wing wants to go after the American girl, but then Nasir's camp is attacked by Ali Bensad. Wing and Nasir are the only survivors. After Wing insults Bensad, he is sent to the Chamber of Reptiles to be tortured. He also learns that the girl, Lynn Harding, is going to be forced to marry Ali Bensad. Wing is rescued by Renelli, a spy from the Foreign Legion, who has infiltrated Bensad's camp. Once he is free, Wing tries to get Lin out of the camp. The rescue fails when the girl trips over her own clothing and falls down. When the pair are taken back in front of Bensad, the Arab leader orders Wing's hands cut off. Before the order can be carried out, though, troops from the Foreign Legion are spotted outside the camp. Ali Ben Saad places Wing Brady and Lynn on the walls of their fort, and the Legion troops see them up there, so they halt their attack. Ben Saad then rides out to speak with the commander of the Foreign Legion, Captain Chevenny. Ben Saad threatens to kill his hostages unless the Legion soldiers depart. One thing to note here is that Captain Chevenny claims that the girl is a citizen of the British Empire. She was specifically mentioned as being an American girl, not British, earlier in this adventure. Now she's suddenly British. I guess I shouldn't be surprised by this. After all, before the caravan that she was riding in was attacked, the girl riding in the caravan was actually identified as Laurel Dean, not Lynn Harding. Laurel was said to be riding to her own wedding. It's possible that Laurel and Lynn were both in the caravan? But I think this is just another one of those details that got strangely forgotten or changed during the middle of the story. In any case, Wing remains a hostage atop the walls of the fort. Rinelli, the spy, helps him cut his ropes that bind his hands. When bin Saad returns to the fort, Wing jumps off the wall and on top of the Arab leader. While the two men struggle, Rinelli is shot. Wing then uses Ali bin Saad as a human shield and walks back to the Foreign Legion camp with his prisoner, and Lynn Harding as well. Thus ends the first Wing-Brady story. This story was very uneven and not nearly as good as the Barry O'Neill adventure that I covered in my last episode. Wing is captured no less than three times in the span of 26 pages, and every time he requires rescue from an outside party. He doesn't seem very much like a hero. Isn't the sidekick supposed to be the one that gets captured all the time? Anyway, Slim was the one saving him early on, and then Rinelli. What did that earn him? Well, Slim got written off, and Rinelli got shot. Good job, Wing Brady. The art was also very uneven from episode to episode. While I did prefer Hickey's figure drawing to Keeper's, I would describe Hickey's style as somewhat bland. He did a decent job telling the story, but the action sequences didn't convey any sense of motion. Keeper had a more illustrative style, but I didn't care for the way he drew people's faces. His action scenes were better than hippies, including that ridiculous plane stunt where Wing pulls a man off his horse while hanging upside down from an airplane. Overall, not the best of stories. This one ended in more fun number 18. Given that Wing's feature lasted another 34 issues, there is plenty of opportunity for this series to improve. I'll be checking those stories out later. Wing's adventures have only been reprinted in The Big Book of Fun Comics, which contains episode 2 and 3. Another Wing Brady story appeared in Warrior Comics number 1 in 1945, published by H.C. Blackerby. This is another of those odd reprint books like Atomic, Bingo, and Cavalier that I mentioned in past episodes. This one contains Mark Marson reprints, also by artist Tom Hickey. The Marston Strip debuted in More Fun number 15, so I'll be covering it in the near future. I don't know precisely what episodes are reprinted in Warrior Comics, since I don't have a copy, but I believe it to be Hickey's work, not Keeper's, which means it had to be More Fun number 11 or later. The last of these odd DC reprints that wasn't even published by DC was Federal Men Comics number 2. This one was by Gerard Publishing and contained the Siegel & Schuster series, Federal Men and Calling All Cars, a.k.a. Radio Squad. I'll probably mention it again when I cover those two features. All these oddball titles were published in late 1945. I really knew, wish I knew what the story was behind their publication. I have been checking out copies of these on eBay recently, but I haven't pulled the trigger on any of them. The Wing Brady feature in New Fund number 1 through 6 was not a full page strip. It shared the page with another short feature. In number 1, one of the Oswald the Rabbit strips ran at the bottom of the Wing Brady page. In number 2, the top of the page featured a short Famous Soldiers of Fortune strip. The byline on that strip reads, Lander which I'm assuming is a pseudonym for Lyman Anderson, the artist who did Jack Woods and the Jack Andrews Strip. Famous Soldiers of Fortune ran for only four panels, and tells about someone named Captain Jack, a former Navy man who traveled the world as a soldier in various conflicts. It says to be continued at the end of the strip, but it doesn't actually continue in the next issue. I also get the feeling that it had started somewhere else, So essentially what we have here is a middle chapter of something, but the beginning and the end chapter, at least as far as new fun goes, doesn't exist. Issues three and four have a single wide panel at the top of the Wing Brady pages. These were done by Wing's regular artist, Henry Kiefer, and told about famous soldiers of France. Number three tells about Charles Martel, known as the Hammer, he united the Frankish tribes against the invasions of the Saracens at Tours in the fall of 732 AD. Charles defeated the Arabs in a decisive battle. Christianity was at stake, and Charles's victory saved Europe from Islam. Charles unified the Franks into a coordinate nation. He died on October 22, 741 AD. This text appeared on the page and was accompanied by a nice illustration of a carnage filled medieval battle scene. Number four tells us about the Chevalier Bayard, known as the Knight Without Fear and Without Reproach. He fought in the Italian wars under Louis the Twelfth and his son Francis the First. He was killed on april thirtieth, fifteen twenty four, in the French retreat from Milan. Bayard was mourned alike by friends and foes, Many of both came to bid him a last farewell as he lay dying on the field. The illustration shows the dying knight laying on his back, surrounded by the other knights. This illustration is just okay, but there is a drawing of Bayard mounted on his horse. That drawing was nicely drawn and detailed. New Fun number five has a Captain Spinnaker strip on the Wing Brady page, and it's signed by Mott, which is Tom backwards. I'll likely be discussing this one in my next episode since Spinnaker was a continuing feature that began in New Fun number two. Wing Brady shares a page in issue number six with a three panel humor strip drawn by Vin Sullivan. This strip, which features two young boys, isn't titled. One of the boys though looks very much like a character from Sullivan's Spike Spaulding strip, which began in New Fun number three. Whether this strip is intended to be part of that feature isn't really clear to me, but I think it's likely as other Sullivan strips appear atop other pages in issue 6. Some contain the same characters, including Pincus, who definitely is from Spike Spaulding. The joke in this strip is pretty weak. One of the boys says he envies his Uncle Jim, who has no school, no work, no baths. When the other boy asks where his uncle is, the first boy answers, Oh, he's dead. Like I said, not exactly a knee-slapper. For those of you that have expressed curiosity about my collection, I suggest you check out my Facebook page. You can find it under Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, or just click the link from my website. I have been actively buying a lot of Golden Age material recently, and when I buy new issues, I post pictures of them on the Facebook page. For instance, I just picked up a copy of Morphine number 46, which features a Wayne Brady adventure. The Metropolis mailbag has just arrived, with new emails from new listeners. Dear Mike, I recently found your podcast. I enjoyed the first two episodes very much. I find early history of the comic book medium interesting. I look forward to learning more about some of the lesser-known early features, as well as the development of the DC brand of comics. Respectfully, Gus Shaw. Thanks, Gus. I'm glad that the show has piqued your interest so far. I have been a little bit concerned that this show would have some trouble finding an audience. After all, many of these stories and characters that I'm covering are completely unknown to most of the comics world. Even if you aren't familiar with them, I'm doing my best to keep things interesting. History can be fun, although I didn't always think that way in school. My next email comes from John M. Wilson of the Golden Age Superman podcast. I love comics. I love history. And I love comics history. I like to think of myself as an amateur comics historian. But I know enough to know that there are scads that I don't know. As such, I absolutely love your website and go there several times a day for any number of reasons, not the least of which is to get information from my own podcast, Golden Age Superman which is set just a few years after yours. Like Luke Giaconetti said in his email, I've often wondered what the man behind the newsstand was like, and here you are now, sharing your comic history nerdery with the rest of us through the magic of podcasting. Your format and plan for the show is one I find a bit ingenious, following story strands rather than comic book issues. You're right that it gives a strong coherency to the narrative of each episode that would likely be lacking if you went issue by issue. I do like how you take time out to address the history of creators and explanations behind story directions. I also have had aha moments moments when you've described quirks of the trade that i found to be still occasional in the backup stories of action comics. Things like breaks in the story or missing chapters, complete shifts of direction without any warning, or the complete drop of seemingly important plot threads or characters. As a fellow podcaster, if I have anything to say about the show that would be from the aspect of constructive criticism, it would have nothing to do with your content. I think you're doing well there, and your delivery has had an improvement as you've gone on. Rather, I would point out that your sound levels are a bit uneven. In episode 3, when the feature presentation cue played, I thought maybe I'd accidentally switch tracks on my player. I think the cue was a great choice but keeping the volume a little closer to the surrounding audio would be good. Anyways, I have enjoyed the show and look forward to more. I'll be promoting it on my shows, Golden Age Superman and Avengers Inspirations. John M. Wilson Thank you, John. I appreciate the advice. I'm recording using Audacity, and I'm still learning how to use all the features appropriately. In fact, for this episode, I'm going to be trying to use the uh, noise reduction filter, to get rid of some of the background noise. The fan on my computer is pretty loud and I always notice it when I'm editing shows that I can hear the fan in the background. Uh, I, too, consider myself something of an amateur historian in the comics field. After building my website and collecting information for it for over 15 years now... Wow, it has been that long. I started it in 1998. Anyway, I have learned a lot just from the process of finding and putting up that kind of information. Not surprisingly, I've already made some new discoveries in the research I've done for this show. I hope by sharing these discoveries I spark some interest in this rare and forgotten material with uh, your listeners. Even though I doubt anyone is going to run out and buy some thousand dollar comics based on my show, I hope you at least find the information useful or entertaining. By the way, I know I've gotten some emails from a few podcasters like you, John please feel free to send me a promo for your shows as well. I'll add it to my show at the end so that we can maybe get some people interested in your shows also. One of these days, I plan to do a promo myself, but my time is so limited, I don't know when I'm going to get around to that. Recently, I did a brief guest spot on Comics Monthly Monday, a podcast on the Two True Freaks Network. If you aren't listening to any of their shows, Get on the ball, go download an episode, and fire up the MP3 player. Send me promos, I'll play them, even Marvel ones. I'm an equal opportunity guy here. So that's about it for today's show. Once again, don't forget to visit Mike's Amazing World online at www.mikesamazingworld.com. Thanks to the two true freaks, Scott and Chris, for helping distribute my show. Be a pal and check out their other shows. You'll be happy you did. You can also like me on Facebook. I post site updates and other relevant information there regularly. You can also help other people find my show by posting reviews on iTunes. Take care, everyone. I'll see you
0: here next time for Mike's Amazing World of DC History.